everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I am joined here again today by the wonderful Journey and Nicole. This week, Nicole is going to be telling us all about the case of the Craigslist killer, and Journey will be educating us on the science of digital forensics and how it played a role in uh, the investigation of the Craigslist killer. So, Before we get started, I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are detailed descriptions of physical assault, murder, and suicide throughout this episode. So without further ado, I would like to pass the mic on to Nicole to tell us all about this week's case story of the Craigslist killer. Yeah, so thank you. As this episode title indicates, and as you just mentioned, um, the case study we're going to cover today has to do with the website Craigslist. Now, for our non-American listeners or those who may not be familiar with this website, this is basically just like a buy and sell website. So for us Canadians, our version of Craigslist would be um, Kijiji, I would say. Like, um, And then I guess a more general comparison could be Facebook Facebook marketplace. So it's just a place for you to like put advertisements up for any services if you're selling stuff. Um, and you can get a hold of people that way. Do we also have Craigslist in Canada though? I don't think so. I genuinely oh. haven't looked that up. I totally I thought we it did. I thought it was kind of like before Kijiji. Yeah, I think it could have been something in Canada, like before Kijiji, like you said, but I'm not sure. It's still a thing, at least here. It says Craigslist is an American classified advertisements website with sections devoted to jobs, housing, da 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 da. Um, it looks like there's Toronto areas. Okay. Um, oh yeah, so there's like yeah, I guess it is. It looks so sketchy though. I'm on it right now. Yeah, I think it's like. Kijiji definitely looks friendlier, and I think Craigslist just kind of has a bad rep because of all this kind of stuff yeah. that happened on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there is a Craigslist for Canada with, like, certain cities, but it's definitely not, I'd say, as broad as, um, like, Kijiji or Marketplace. Because didn't um, the Dexter killer that we covered... Um Use Craigslist? Mark something or other. Didn't he find his victims on Craigslist or am I thinking of something else? I genuinely can't remember that far back. Okay. (laughs) So. Okay, we'll just move on then. Uh, um, Possibly. If not, maybe I just automatically thought it was Kijiji when we covered that. But, um, yeah. So the reason why I wanted to start with talking about Craigslist is that our main guy that we're going to be talking about, um, Philip Markov. He wasn't actually the first or the last person to use Craigslist um, for nefarious activities. So there's a blog run by a company called Advanced Interactive Media Group, um, who has documented the number of killings that have used Craigslist as a conduit of their crimes. So in 2021, they reported that since 2007, there have been at least 131 murders where Craigslist was involved. So That's honestly more than I expected. Yeah. And I th- don't know like 
how accurate those numbers are because it's not really a police investigative survey or um research or number that they have gotten. Um, and those are just documented. So I feel like a lot of other shadier stuff goes on that's not documented or not, you know, taken to the police. Um, so who knows how many more murders have happened. But yes, a scary number, 131 in since 2007 to 2021. And the first man to be dubbed the Craigslist killer by media was 19-year-old Michael John Anderson, who committed murder in 2007. So he was seen as kind of like that dumb kid in school. He didn't really know how to talk to women, let alone know how to be intimate with one. And to kind of overcome this, he created a whole bunch of Craigslist ads in an attempt to meet more people and ultimately to lure in like potential victims. So in one of his ads, Anderson pretended to be a woman by the name of Amy who was looking for someone to watch her five-year-old child. Seeing this ad, 24-year-old Catherine Ann Olson reached out looking for a babysitting job, and they set up a time to meet. Upon arrival to Anderson's Minnesota home on October 25th, 2007, Catherine was then shot in the back with a revolver and stuffed into the trunk of Anderson's car, where she unfortunately bled to death. So I hate that her gunshot wasn't the cause of death, but ultimately... um, loss of blood, which sadly makes for a longer death than hoped for if you were had to, had to go out that way. But um, Anderson was convicted of first-degree murder, and this was among other charges, charges, excuse me, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. The murder committed by Markov happened in 2009, Um, which we'll get into more afterwards, but killings still continue to happen after his whole big murder with the media. And 53-year-old Richard Beasley ended up killing three men in 2011 um, using Craigslist. So this was two years after Markov's whole uh, case. So over the span of four months, David Polly, Ralph Geiger, and Timothy Kern were shot and killed by Beasley. He had posted a Craigslist ad searching for someone to watch his farm in Ohio while he was going to be away. Um, but in reality, this whole Craigslist scheme was being used to obtain fake identity papers and secure some extra income. Um, I guess there was a warrant out for his arrest um, for running like a brothel or in something having to do with the halfway home. So he just was a shady guy to begin with. But uh, yeah, so his post had said that he was looking for someone to, quote, live for free in a double wide trailer, nothing in the way of duties except to take in the peacefulness of the countryside and make sure no one steals any farm equipment or perpetuates any mischief, end quote. So he was offering 300 bucks a week, and due to it being a live-in situation, those interested were told to bring, um, you know, some cash and some possessions with them just for the time being. I'm not really sure how long he was looking for them to stay, whether it be like a week or a month. Um, but I was, I would assume like the cash and the possessions would just be like phones, laptops, whatever you had at the time, um, to keep yourself busy. 
With the help of 16-year-old Brogan Rafferty, they would continue to kill three men. Um, so these three men all reached out to Beasley regarding this Craigslist ad, looking to be that person to um, stay in his double-wide trailer. And their fourth victim, though, Scott Davis, he was actually able to escape from the two of them. And while he was wounded, he was able to contact the police and report Beasley and Rafferty to them. So this pairing of like Beasley and Rafferty was very much, in my opinion, one of those instances where, you know, like the older, more dominant person is very much taking advantage of that troubled youth person. And some of the sources I read stated that like, Rafferty really looked up to Beasley and he remembers like when he was younger, just actually thinking that Beasley was Santa Claus almost just because of the way he looked and like that demeanor that he gave off when they were together. Um, But so basically he pretty well put all of his trust into um, this Beasley character and they took on kind of a fatherly role. But in the end, Beasley was convicted of av- aggravated murder and attempted murder, among other charges, on March 13th, 2013. He was sentenced... Oh, that was yesterday. Uh, how? Ten years ago yesterday. Wow, look at that. Um, he was sentenced to death, but is, as of 2021, at the Chillicothe Correctional Institution in Ohio, feel like I butchered that, so I apologize. But um, yeah, he was still up and kicking since then. I'm not sure about uh, the last two years, but um, the young boy, the 16-year-old Rafferty, he faced similar convictions, but was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole instead. And I find it really interesting that out of these three cases, like of Anderson, Markoff, and Beasley, only Markov's case, which I'm going to talk about next, had a lot of like, not a lot, but had more information to look into. And it was more publicized. And um, even though it was pretty well the same crime, like it all resulted in a death of someone using Craigslist in the States. So I'm not sure like what set them apart from all of it or from each other. Sorry. So I want to get your thoughts once I go through Markov's case. Um, so jumping back, though, to Philip, Philip Markov, this is the main case study of this episode. I just kind of wanted to do a brief Craigslist killing overview. Um, he was born on February 12th, 1986 in Cheryl, New York. And while in school, Markov was on the bowling team, youth court, history club, and was also a member of the National Honor Society. After finishing high school, he received a bachelor's degree in biology from the University at Albany. And while he was there, this is where he met Megan McAllister, a fellow pre-med student. And she had actually been the one to ask um, Markov out on a date. And after three years together, Markov then proposed to her and they had scheduled their wedding for August 14th, 2009. Uh, when they both graduated, she was how many years older? Three years older, two years older than him. Um, but they both graduated f- and moved to Boston together. And then they both attended Boston University and went to um, studied medicine. So they were in medical school and whatnot. 
But yeah, in 23, Markov seemed to be living a little bit of a double life. So in one, he was this medical student. His professors described him as incredibly intelligent. Um, I'm not too sure about the whole family life situation. That wasn't really publicized through sources that I've been finding, but it seemed like a relatively normal life. Um, but the other life he was living, um, he was responding to sex work ads on Craigslist, going to high-end hotels where he'd hold these women at gunpoint, tie them up, and rob them. And this eventually led to killing one woman. So kind of a little different, um, both ends of the spectrum there, I would say. But during the year prior to these assaults, um, he was on Craigslist just kind of, I guess, getting a feel for everything. And he was reaching out to a whole bunch of different people, never meeting up with them in person, though. But he had apparently sent messages and photos to multiple men who had posted M4T ads on the website. And so if you're like me and didn't know what M4T ads were, this was shorthand, apparently, for, quote, men looking for transvestites, quote, at that time. So, adds a little bit into the mix there. Um, in May of 2008, messages were exchanged between Markov and an individual who, in their bio or their ad or their page or however Craigslist works, um, that individual had identified themselves as a transvestite on the page there. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure on terminology. Like this is what was said in all of the sources I'm reading. I'm not sure if that's the proper term uh, for today. Um, but that's, uh, what the sources were mentioning. And Markov had used the email sexaddict5385 at yahoo.com. So he wasn't subtle about it, I will say. Like, at all. <laughs> I And I don't know if he wanted to be subtle about it, but it, you wouldn't think so. Um, so the conversations between Markov and this individual didn't really lead to anything. They didn't meet up in person, but... Markov, again, a couple months later, did reach out. So in January 2009, reached out to the same person but used a different username. So he was using a different account. And explicit photos were exchanged both times. But again, this this re-reaching out, I guess, never led to any in-person meetups. But a few months later, in April of 2009... Uh, Markov did respond to an ad posted by Trisha Leffler, and she was a masseuse who was advertising her services through Craigslist. So Leffler would later tell um, CBS News that the two of them had made plans to meet that night at a nearby hotel. When they got to the hotel, that's when her assailant had pulled a gun on her, tied her up, and took all of her money. And from one of the sources that I read, she was very much saying that she just did what he told her to do. Like whatever he was saying, she listened, gave him all her money, um, didn't really physically at least fight back um, this assailant. But not even a week later, uh, four days after this assault, Markov met 26-year-old Julisha 
Julissa, sorry, Brisman at a Boston Marriott hotel to receive again, a massage. So she was also, um, Julissa was also using Craigslist to sell services of like masseuse and, um, sexual services through Craigslist. And regarding this, uh, encounter, I guess, the district attorney, Dan Conley, had said that once in the hotel room together, Markov, quote, crushed her skull in with the butt of a nine millimeter semi-automatic pistol before pressing it into her chest and firing three times, end quote. And so I will say there's a bit of discrepancy with what I found researching. So some source, another source said that Jalisa was shot through her heart, lung and hip, Um, Other sources just said she was shot three times at close range. So I'm not entirely sure, you know, if all three went through her chest, if somehow two went through her chest, one found a way down to her hip. I'm not positive, but the general facts are that three shots were fired and they were all at close range. Um, Another source, though, was saying that she was restrained like the previous victim, but with this one, I think because they don't quite know exactly what happened, um, they think that Markov was initially just planning to rob her like he had done with Trisha. Just go in, tie her up, take her money, kind of overpower her, and then leave. But it's believed that Brisman um, started to really fight back her attacker, and that's when he had taken his gun and beat her with it and then continued to shoot her three times. And so I will talk about it a bit further, but I will note that Markov's case never like went to trial or he was never properly convicted of this. Um, So keep that in mind when it comes to fact finding and kind of the sources that are discussed around this case, because nothing's like, there's no formal legal decision that had said Markov was the man who did this. So I'll put that out there. But two days after Brisbane's murder, another attempted robbery had occurred in Rhode Island um, in another hotel. And so this victim, Cynthia Melton, said her assailant responded to her Craigslist ad um, where they planned to meet up. But again, once there, he pulled out a gun, tied her up, and demanded that she tell him where her money was kept. He, though, was interrupted by Melton's husband. Um, I'm not sure if he was, like, hiding in the bathroom or hiding, like, in the room beside, like, where the husband was and how he came into play. But anyways, Markov was interrupted, um, and he ended up fleeing the scene. But it was neat because investigators were able to link these three crimes together, I guess, just by, like, location, vicinity, and... Um, now you're probably wondering, like, digital forensics, since that's the topic of our case. Well, they were actually able to, um, get some digital evidence that linked the crimes together as well. So let's get on into that. So first, security footage was analyzed from each of these three crimes, and they identified what they believed to be the same man in all three videos, um... And at the time, though, it didn't give them a name. So they didn't really have anything to work with. Just that this man was seen at these three hotels on the date of each of the crimes. And he happens to kind of look the same. 
And at the time, like security footage is so grainy. I, it wasn't the most reliable. So like I said, they didn't have a name. They just had this vague idea of what he looked like. Then they searched further though. They pulled cell tower records. Um, the FBI, sorry, pulled cell tower records from those towers that were close to each of the scenes. And they looked at a span of 15 minutes before the crime and then 15 minutes after the crime at each of those respective hotels. Another thing that they had done is they searched for the same phone number um, that would be active in all three locations on that day in and around the time of the crime. This didn't really prove much evidence or didn't provide much evidence since Markov had been using multiple different disposable phones. And in my opinion, this kind of reeks of confirmation bias because if they were to find a pattern somewhere in those phone numbers, this like you're looking for the matching phone number. Like if you're going into it with the idea of I need to find the same phone number in all three, like if you found, what if there were like five different phone numbers that were in all three locations, would you stop after the first one kind of thing? Because you're like, Oh, well we found it. Um, so I don't know. I'm not huge on that method and it is a pretty controversial method. I will say raising alarm bells for like other companies and privacy and all that fun stuff. But next, after that, the investigators looked into the email address that was used to contact Julissa about the night that they were going to meet up and, like, the plans and all of that. And um, they found that in these uh, correspondences, it was just, like, brief conversation. They both used fake names, um, it was realized. But it turned out that the email was a throwaway email account. And this is known as a disposable email address or also DEAs. So it it gave the investigators like not much. So there was no personal identifying information that could be used. But with this email, the IP address was able to be obtained from Microsoft after they had um, gotten a subpoena for it. And then they were also with that subpoena able to get the name and physical address of who the IP address belonged to. So it was actually Comcast who gave the investigators this information. And then this person ended up being Philip Markov. So apparently, because I honestly don't know how technology works, and I don't think I will ever understand how like Wi-Fi and IP addresses and devices work. Um, from my quick Googling, it says that IP addresses are linked to your device and they provide like unique addresses depending on what network you're using and what device you're on. So it kind of just gives you a location for that device in a sense. And then it can be linked like how it was in this case. It can be linked to the network and then the network can be linked back to whoever own like is paying for that network, you know? So that's my general idea of IP address. In this case, though, since the wireless router was used for this um, network, it couldn't directly be linked to Markov since essentially anyone in his building or in his apartment could have used this shared wireless connection. So from my understanding, I think of it as like a like a building Wi-Fi, not a personal router for each individual apartment. I'm not quite sure how 
it would have worked in 2011. That sounds very like millennial of me to say, but um, like, yeah, I'm not positive how that would have happened, but um, they also obtained another subpoena for Mark's Facebook account. So from this subpoena, information regarding his tagged photos, his wall posts, his friends list, and then also a full login history with their associated IP addresses um, were able to be obtained uh, for this investigation. Since this, though, apparently Facebook claims that they wouldn't give out this much identifying or this much personal information anymore just on a subpoena alone. And so they would actually need a proper search warrant to um, hand over that information to investigators. So I don't know like how I feel about that, if that's good or bad news. Like, I guess it's going to get handed over anyways, but I think with the search warrant, cause I was able to find that as well. Okay. Um, I think they just need to prove before a judge that they need this information. With mm-hmm. a subpoena, I don't believe you need to prove to a judge to get the subpoena. Oh, so you can just be like, hey, this would be helpful information to have. Let's go ask the guy and add a fancy word, fancy title Pretty to much. it. That's okay. my understanding. I don't know if that's <laughs> okay. exactly what it is, but as far as I know, like it takes more effort to get a search warrant than it does to get a subpoena. So yeah. by saying you need a search warrant for this, it just means you have to jump through more hoops. You have to have the evidence to show like why mm-hmm. this could provide information. Okay. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Okay. Thank you. So in addition to the digital evidence found, one of the surviving victims was able to identify Markov through a, a photo, and then Julissa's blood was found on his shoes at the time of his arrest. Investigators also moved towards classic, you know, detective work to get more information and evidence to kind of solidify their case against him because um, they hadn't arrested him or anything like that. They were still trying to build their case. So they started to stake out his apartment, and if Markov went anywhere, they would follow. And they, I, I don't know, the source said that they would pretty well dust anything he touched to try and get fingerprints afterwards. So, like, if he went grocery shopping, they would, like, collect his cart after he used it and then, like, dust the grocery cart for fingerprints. Um, which I feel like you would kind of notice a group of forensic team, like, people – doing that after you left or I don't know. That's just my, my thoughts on it. I'd like to think that I would notice that. Yeah. Right. Like, like if you have (laughs) someone trailing you, I would like to think you'd be like, "Mm, something feels off. Like I've seen you. (laughs) Yeah, literally. Um, but I guess we'll never know unless we're trailed. So if that ever happens, we will report back and let, let the viewers or listeners know. Um, But I guess they were able to actually obtain some prints and they were compared to a print that was found at Brisbane's crime scene. And this provided them, sorry, this provided them with a close enough match to get an arrest warrant search, like further their case along and actually bring him in Um, first for, for questioning. And then at that point they said that had a case to actually charge him. But um, with that, Markov and his fiance Megan, were pulled over by police on their way to a Connecticut casino. 
And reports said that they had thousands of dollars in cash on them. And like, I'm no expert at casinos or just owning thousands of dollars that I can just have out in cash. So I don't know if this is normal or not. I know the one and only time that I went to a casino when I was 19, I think I walked in with like $20. So I really don't know where that money frame or range hits (laughs) when you're going to gamble. Um, but yeah, that could be odd, could be not odd at all. And I'm just thinking it's odd, but besides the point, um, they were brought in for questioning and their Markov had repeatedly asked for a lawyer and he actually asked over two dozen times and each time the detectives deflected his request. So, did we not learn that everything <laughs> said after they ask for a lawyer is inadmissible yeah. without the lawyer present? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, you just want to double yeah. check. <laughs> Stay first. Yeah. And so, like, his interview, so they kind of, when I, I'll add it to her, I'll try and find a way to add it to our website because I did find a PDF version of a transcript of, um, his whole interview, it's like 63 pages, though. Mm-hmm. But they were very, like, good cop, bad cop with the fiancé and him. And they very much took the bad cop view or side with Markov's investigation. So they were, like, cursing at him. They were using, like, very tough guy, uh, tough talk to you um, with him. And it just didn't go anywhere. Like, they were just very mm. aggressive with it, it seemed like. And, you know, they were telling them oh, we've got evidence that someone that looks identical to you commit these crimes. Um, Profanity, profanity, profanity. Tell us you did it kind of thing. And again, it didn't, they didn't get anything of it. So they got no confession, no nothing from that. But on like, I don't know if it was the room next door or where in the building, but they were also interrogating or interviewing whatever the word is. Um, the fiance and they very much took a more gentle like so what kind of internet do you use what kind of phones do you have like they were actually asking proper questions <laughs> to her and i don't know if that was being done to markov um but yeah so they were asking you know what laptops uh what information they could tell or she could tell them about the laptops they owned the phones that they used their wi-fi or like their LAN setup or LAN setup, whatever it's called. Um, in addition to, you know, what websites do you frequent? Like typical investigation questions you would think of in a crime that happened online. <laughs> Makes sense. But then they ended up showing McAllister, like the fiance, the surveillance footage of those three locations, which we'll also try and put on our um, website because there's a YouTube link for those. And she goes to tell them, quote, those aren't his shoes. I monitor all of his shoes, end quote. (laughs) So. That's strange. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess that was her way of saying, like, no, he could never do this. I just find it very interesting that that's how. Like, not that, oh, he's an amazing guy. Like, I was with him, this, this, this. He would never do such a thing. It was, "Mm, those aren't his shoes. I know. I know what shoes he wears. And those, those aren't him. 
Like, yeah, it's not really helping anything. And it's, it's not like, that yeah, hard like, to just him. buy shoes that, you mm-hmm. know, maybe you don't wear all that often or you keep them in your car. Like, I think I have my hiking boots. They just are kept in my car. No one ever sees them unless I go hiking or you're in my car. Exactly. And Bryce buys a pair of new work boots like every other week. So right? how am I going to keep track of all of his work boots? Like if he went <laughs> right. and committed a murder, I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, no, those are his shoes. Yeah. Like, Could be. It's I have also no idea. Like, why are you tracking his shoes? Like why as a significant <laughs> yeah. other are you keeping such great care of making sure you know every pair of shoe he has? Like that makes no Literally. sense to me. <laughs> no it sense. It feels very controlling. I monitor yeah. all of his shoes. Yeah. Yikes. Right? That's okay. That's what I was thinking too. And the mm-hmm. ironic thing is, is that the shoes he was wearing at the time of his arrest had traces of Brisbane's blood on them. So obviously, like, they were his Those shoes. Were his shoes. <laughs> yeah. Those were his oh shoes. Gosh. Like, you missed something there, Megan. I'm sorry that, like, you were his fiance and this is traumatic, but, like, he, you, they were his shoes. <laughs> Come on. Wow. So, yeah, he was arrested in the shoes that had. His yeah. blood on them. From my understanding, oh my from how I read the sources, yeah, that's what happened. That's right? nuts. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they were able to get a search warrant for uh, his apartment, and a bunch of evidence was then found that linked him to the crimes. So they did find a semi-automatic handgun um, that matched that used in the in the crimes i'm not good with guns so i completely excluded that from my notes and now i'm thinking hmm, maybe that would have been helpful to have but it matched uh what was used and it was found in a hollowed out copy of gray's anatomy and before anyone says anything this is actually the medical reference book he was a med student this has nothing to do with the tv show or like discs of the tv show or whatnot um it was just a big ass reference book that he had like old-fashioned detective movies, like cut out the center of, put the gun in, and then folded it back over to create a box, pretty much. Um, But they also found bullets taped to the back of his dryer that matched those that killed Julissa. They found plastic ties that matched those to restrain the victims. Uh, Duct tape, which, I mean, like, I feel like most houses have duct tape, so, okay. But... They also did find uh, a hard drive with records of his and Julissa's conversations and four pairs of women's underwear that were found hidden in his mattress box spring. So not even like it could have been the fiance's underwear because he's living with another woman and, you know, some women wear women's underwear. Nope. They were like shoved (laughs) hiding in his box spring. That's so dumb. Like, they he really could have just hit it with his fiance's underwear and been like, "Oh, I got you new ones." Like, yeah. how yeah. dumb can you be? But no, he. And I feel like the way that his box spring was is like you had to cut open the box spring to get it in. Like box springs are, from my understanding, pretty sealed. Are they not? At least the ones that I've seen. The older ones are open on the bottom. Okay, so maybe he, like, it said that they were shoved in the socks. So maybe he, he, like, put them in the socks and then put them into a spring. I don't really know. It wouldn't take that much to hide something in our, like, in the box spring we have. Okay. Like, we just, like, lift it up and put it inside. Okay, yeah. See, I imagine him, like, 
meticulously like cutting out a spot and putting the socks in. <laughs> well, he probably could have done that too. Like if he wanted to hide it, this a is little true. Bit better. I feel like it's also not uh, a great hiding spot though but i mean to each their own you know you never know it feels like a very guy thing to hide something under the mattress yes it does you know that just (laughs) screams male (laughs) yeah thank you yes um yeah okay where now where was i um yeah so in addition to all of that fun stuff found at his apartment and like i said samples um from his shoes matched. And I guess they also took samples from the gun that was found in his apartment. And they found uh, two bloodstains or two bloodstains were identified on that gun as well. Some sources I've read said that he pled not guilty. Well, yeah, that he pled not guilty to murder and weapons charges. While others say that he did plead guilty, which like, I don't really know why you'd plead guilty to murder charges. If you didn't, think he did them i don't know i think it may have been a typo but anyways his arraignment was on april 21st 2009 um i'm thinking maybe a spelling error and that he pled uh not guilty but yeah we'll never know so within the first 48 hours of being in jail though markov was placed on suicide watch and then this was because of a couple things, I think. One major reason was they found a mark on his neck, um, which was left there by a shoelace. Don't know why, if shoelaces are all that popular in holding cells or jails, but he had a shoelace. And then while his fiance stood by him and defended him for like the most of it, it didn't take her long to leave him ultimately because you know, I feel like I would do that as well. Um, but yeah, so she left him and called off their wedding. And I think that did not sit well with him in any regards. So after this, this is when he was placed on a uh, suicide watch. On August 15th, 2010, this was a day and one year after what would have been their like one year wedding anniversary. Markov was found dead in his cell with a makeshift scalpel made out of a prison issued pen. And all my sources said scalpel. I don't know if this was meant to be like shank. I don't know why it was particularly a scalpel because I think of like medical grade instruments to cut and stuff like that. And I, anyways, besides the point scalpel shiv, they, he had something to stab himself with. So he had apparently cut major arteries in his ankles, legs, and neck. Um, It was reported that he stuffed toilet paper down his throat and that he covered his head with a plastic bag. My question is, how did he get, one, the plastic bag? I feel like if you're on suicide watch, maybe don't give people plastic bags. Um, And... The pen that I saw, I, it was like one of the sources. I don't know if it was the actual pen, but like it looked very much weapon-esque. Like why would you give – Are they? do prisoners get pens? I don't know. I have so many questions. I just feel like that could have been prevented, you know? Definitely. Um, I will ask – you know what? I'll ask my stepbrother. He's a correctional officer. He knows it all. He came home <laughs> with a spoon that they use in prison, and it's just a piece of – 
paper pretty much that you fold on both sides and that creates your spoon because oh they're goodness. not allowed cutlery. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, fun, fun stuff. But side tangent again, besides the point, um, it's also said that he wrote in his own blood on the walls, uh, Megan, which was the name of his fiance or his ex-fiance, and the word pocket, like P-O-C-K-E-T. So investigators aren't really sure what he meant by pocket. It didn't say whether, you know, they checked his pockets. Maybe he had something in a pocket. I don't know. They did not disclose any of that information in any of the sources I read. Um, and then the motive for why he did all of this is still kind of unknown since he wasn't able to tell us. But the idea is like, it's speculated that he was about $130,000 in debt with uh, student loans and a bit of a gambling addiction and gambling problem. So he could have just been, you know, trying to find a way to repay this debt through this uh, armed robbery scheme. And then it just kind of did not go as planned. And he ended up killing an individual. But as for Craigslist, their um, their erotic services section was then changed to adult services after um, Markov's case. But uh, later in 2010, so this would have the case was in 2009. That's when they changed it to adult services. In 2010, uh, that section would be removed altogether. And due to the nature, go ahead. Um. I would just like to say that it makes me very uncomfortable that that was even a section to begin <laughs> with. <laughs> right. Um, considering yeah. isn't like paying for sex or like a sexual service illegal in the U S yeah. Isn't it solicitation? Mm-hmm. I know like, in Canada, like you can solicit yourself, but you can't, or not solicit, but I know in Canada, like a prostitute or a sex worker is allowed to like accept money for sex work. But the problem, I guess, like the illegal part is someone paying them for sex work, which mm-hmm. either oh, way, I, I feel like on Craigslist in an erotic service section, like someone still has to give money. And if their laws are the same in like the US as in Canada, yeah, it's still illegal. <laughs> I Maybe think they were, there's a loophole in the US. Yeah. Like but. like the only loophole that I could think of is the woman like the victims of Markov and well no, specifically Markov. They were like putting ads out for like masseuse services, like they were massage services or like one um victim was lap dances. So like they weren't necessarily like pay me and i will sleep with you that upfront about it like i think that was their way around it was oh well we're not engaging in actual proper sexual intercourse on paper but like behind the if you read between the lines that's exactly what it was that makes a lot of sense i think that's probably definitely the reason they said they were masseuses Yeah, which I could kind of see, like, why they would have changed it to then adult services rather than erotic, because then erotic just kind of implies there's that sexual component. Um, 
but thankfully that adult uh, section was removed altogether. Um, in addition to uh, what other categories? There's categories called like casual encounters and dating uh, sections. So I feel like it was just like a weird amalgamation of like Kijiji and like Facebook Marketplace and I want to say uh, Christian Mingle. I don't know why that's like my go-to dating app, but like Tinder, like all of these dating services all in one which just does not sound like a good mix to me. Um, when you said casual encounters, it just kind of made me think of like a Reddit subthread. Yeah, right? Where it's like Craigslist is just the Reddit for selling things. Yeah. Like it just seems like a weird mix of different sites that are used. Like I could definitely – because there's some – very weird stuff on Reddit. Like that in itself could have be like its own weird oh, yeah. topic of <laughs> anyways. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I can understand. I can see where that, um, where you come from with that, mm-hmm. but it's been reported. So the same company that did the 100, like that stat of 131 murders on Craigslist between, what was it? 2007 and, 2021? Yeah. Yeah. So they said that there was a bit of a decrease in the past few years um, with Craigslist murders. And it's speculated that one, it could have been because of the removal of these um, sections and categories on Craigslist. Another possible explanation um, was just lowered activity, like just a movement to Facebook or a movement to Kijiji. Like there's just different sites for people to use and like different sites that are specifically meant for certain things that they're looking for. Um, but they said with between 2007 and 2015, there were 83 documented k- killings um, through Craigslist. And then only 49 between 2015 and 2021. So not like a, I mean, it, it's kind of a big difference, but it's still more than you would like to see on Craigslist, you know, like 49 murders is still quite a bit. And it's a difference it's, of 34. So yeah, it's uncomfortable that literally up until 2021, people were still being murdered on Craigslist. Yeah. And this was a stat that I just found, like, I haven't seen an updated number. So that's not to say that, like, none have happened between 2021 and 2023. It's just at the time of that post, like, that's what the information they had. And I haven't been able to track down, like, the actual source. You know how, like, Stats Canada gives you this beautiful statistics that you can see for yourself? Mm -hmm. I couldn't find that for this version. So... Take it with a grain of salt, if you will. Um, it's just still 49 is a lot more than zero. And zero is kind of what we're aiming for. Yeah, so, zero would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> zero would be ideal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that is a little bit about the big dubbed media uh, Craigslist killer guy. Um, it's interesting to see that there were other Craigslist killers, but they definitely did not get their, the same notoriety and I guess fame as this one, but yeah, that's my bit. 
Thank you for telling us about that. I also think it's a bit strange that, like, obviously, given how many Craigslist murders there have been, how there's only, like, one notable Craigslist killer. Like, why did he get the nickname Craigslist killer when there's so many? Right? And there were some that happened before him, too. Like, it wasn't even that he was the first one. (laughs) Yeah. Like, all... The only reason I can really think is because he was such like a not saying he was high profile, like he was a medical student, everyone loved him, like that sort of thing. So people were like, Oh, he could never do that and then he goes and does it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. It's just there's lots of Craigslist killers, but not everyone gets the nickname and notoriety, which I guess is a good thing. But mm-hmm. moving on from that. <laughs> thank you so much for telling us about it. Um there is actually a movie that, like, I thought was fictional initially. It's called The Craigslist Killer, I believe, and it's on Netflix. Um, it's all actors. Like, it's not documentary style. It's like a real drama, but it's completely based on Philip Markov's case. So check it out if you're looking for some uh, true crime that looks like fiction. <laughs> uh, so with that being said, because that's how I personally heard about Philip Markov first. Um, Journey, would you like to tell us about digital forensics? For sure. I'll just dive right in, I guess. Um, Digital forensics is the branch of forensics that focuses on identifying, acquiring, processing, analyzing, and reporting on data that is stored electronically. And the main goal of digital forensics is to reliably extract data from the electronic evidence, process it into actionable intelligence, and then present the findings for prosecution. But why is this important? By the end of the day, there are about there are millions of megabytes of data that have been generated about where individuals have been, how fast they got there, who they spoke to, and what they said. And so today, almost all communications involve some kind of computer which demonstrates the need for digital forensics as almost every crime then would have digital evidence associated with it. Um, Digital evidence is also used as part of the incident response process to detect that a breach occurred, identify the root cause and threat actors, eradicate the threat, and provide evidence for legal teams and law enforcement authorities. And so digital evidence can be used as evidence in investigation and legal proceedings for data theft and network breaches, where it's used to understand how a breach happened and who the attackers were. It's used in online fraud and identity theft, where um, its main focus is to understand the impact of a breach on organizations and their customers. It's also used in violent crimes like burglary, assault, and murder, where it's used to capture digital evidence from mobile phones, cars, or other devices that were in the vicinity of the crime. And it's also used in white-collar crimes to collect evidence that can help identify and prosecute crimes like corporate fraud, embezzlement, and extortion. And so since computers are still a relatively new thing, the digital, or sorry, the history of digital forensics only goes back about 60 years. And so I'm going to go into... um, the history of digital forensics, I have it broken up into like the like infancy, childhood, adolescence, and then like before infancy kind of thing. So from the 1960s to the 1980s, computers were like very large machines that were tasked with data processing. 
This was when computers first started catching the interest of information security, legal and law enforcement communities. So they were just starting starting to enter this scene. And then in 1976, there was a book written by Don Parker that was titled Crime by Computer. And it was the first account of digital information assisting in investigations. So that book kind of helped pave the way for digital forensics. Um, Audits were also the first systematic approach to computer security. And so law enforcement knew that the information collected during audits can be used in an investigation. And so the Department of Defense, Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, trained a group of volunteers to assist case investigators in getting information from mainframe computers, um, kind of modeling it at like an audit because they realized that the information gained from an audit was very helpful for investigations. Um, in 1990, Cliff Stoll wrote a book titled The Cuckoo's Egg, which detailed the practice and attitude around early digital forensics. And so investigators at this time were having a hard time understanding that computers could be both victims and perpetrators of crime. Um, up until now, they had only been victims of crimes, I believe. Um, however, Cliff Stoll took it upon himself to do some experimentation regarding computers and digital safety, and he developed a method for recording hackers' malicious activities in real time, which I think is really cool because he basically just played around with computers and what he knew um, and what was known about computers at the time and just like made up this method, which is awesome. And then we move into the digital forensics infancy, which is the years 1985 to 1995, which held the invention of the IBM PC, which introduced a new generation and style of personal computers. And so The first organization dedicated to digital forensics was the International Association of Computer Investigative Specialists, the IACIS, and it was founded in 1989. And the founding members of this organization were members of the IRS, the U.S. Secret Service, local law enforcement agencies, and actually two Canadians, which is pretty cool. And they're like the agencies that they worked for didn't recognize the importance of their efforts within this um, like organization. Um, however, forensic researchers today are extremely thankful for them because they actually learned quite a bit of information that's beneficial today. And then in 1993, the FBI hosted the first international conference on computer evidence at Quantico, and there were representatives from 26. 26- 26 different countries there. And two years later, in 1995, a second conference was held in Baltimore. And after the second conference, the International Organization on Computer Evidence was founded. So it's just kind of um, showing um, that people are recognizing the importance of this. Um, And there's a lot of investigations that were focused on recovering data from standalone computers. And so storage was very expensive at the time. So users often deleted data and then reformatted their media, which made data recovery very difficult. So you wouldn't be able to get data from a certain period because it would have been deleted for storage. And something that I think is really fun and didn't know about was that cheap computers could be used to hack telephone services and then add another level of anonymity to 
I, either the phone calls or the computers. I don't fully understand what happened. Um, but I think it's really interesting. So were they just able to kind of like throw something in to screw up whoever's looking at it to add in that extra layer of, ooh, research, like look this way, not that way? I think what they were doing were they were just hooking their computer up to the phone line oh. to get like free phone services or something. Oh, I don't know how telephones or phones work, so I'm not yeah, the right person I don't to have this fully understand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, is really interesting, but I yeah I don't fully understand. And the paper that I learned this from didn't go any deeper into um, what actually happened. But I was like, oh, that's cool. Anyways, love that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very helpful. Um, so there was many noteworthy products from this period, but one specifically was Safeback which was created by Chuck Guzzi's in 1991. And so its function was to get forensic images of evidence. And it's thought that this was the first commercial digital forensic product, which is pretty neat. Um, And so digital forensics wasn't immediately accepted because it contradicted the physical lab evidence practice that forensic scientists were used to. Um, they weren't able to understand, like, online, even though that wasn't necessarily a thing. But instead of having, like, a physical fingerprint, you were dealing with, like, a zeros and ones of computer code. And that was very difficult for a forensic scientist to kind of wrap their head around. Um, however, some agencies did recognize the increased need for some digital forensic investigative abilities, And so each agency practiced different models of selection, training, and operations. However, the majority of digital forensic investigations were done by officers who didn't have a lot of training. They were using personal equipment, and they had no supervision or quality control. So it was just kind of like, if you happen to know a little bit more about a computer and you were willing to take the time out of your own day to look into this computer, you were a digital forensic um, investigator. And so since these agencies did recognize the increased need for digital forensic investigations, um, they each kind of created like their own program. So the IRS created the Seized Computer Evidence Recovery Specialist Program. The Secret Service created the Electronic Crime Special Agent Program. The FBI had the Computer Analysis Response Team. And the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations had the Computer Crime Investigator Program, as well as another program that eventually turned into the Defense Computer Forensic Laboratory. So some of them are still being used today, which is pretty cool. And to address the lack of training, the Forensic Association of Computer Technologists created training opportunities and a network of geographically dispersed specialists. Um, And there was an impromptu organization called Geeks with Guns that was started by digital forensic specialists from the FBI, Secret Service, Maryland State Police, and Baltimore County Police. And since computers were not just in North America, we see the formation of of the forensic computing group in the UK as well at this time. And the goals of these organizations were to develop the develop and share forensic training since the demand for quality and affordable training exceeded the availability. Another interesting thing about this time period was that the academic community 
didn't care about digital forensics, except for two professors, Jean Spayford of Purdue University and Dorothy Denning of Georgetown University. And it was these two professors that were responsible for encouraging law enforcement agents and students to explore the rapidly developing field of digital forensics, which is awesome. And so the next time period we need to look at, the childhood of digital forensics, is from 1995 to 2005. And so this time period is important for three different reasons. The first reason is that there was an explosion of technology during this decade. So at the beginning, most phone calls were made via a landline, computer networks used dial-up, and no one had heard of the internet. But by the end of this decade, almost everyone had an email, everyone had a cell phone, almost everyone used the internet, and homes and businesses also had networks within them. The second reason this time period is important is the increase in child pornography cases. And so it was revealed that computers were used to traffic illegal images of minors. And so an online operation called Innocent Images was started in 1995. And by the end of this decade, there were separate child pornography task forces in almost every single law enforcement and government agency, which it's good that there are those task forces, but it's heartbreaking that they needed to be there. And the third reason um, wasn't Y2K, um, because nothing really happened, but that was something that everyone was like really nervous about. Um, but the third reason is actually 9-11. And so investigators found bits and pieces of evidence on computers around the world pertaining to the terrorist attack. And the lack of digital forensic abilities during this time indicated a huge blind spot. So quite a bit of money, time, people, and resources were then devoted to digital forensics after the 9-11 terrorist attack. Again, glad we now have all of this information. Terrible it had to happen this way. And so throughout this decade, the field of digital forensics became more and more specialized as specific knowledge and training was required for the new devices being released. And forensic tools also underwent a massive change um, to more complex interfaces as the devices were um, also changing to be more complex. And um, traditional forensic laboratories began offering digital examinations instead of just um, physical like examining physical evidence. So now we're at the adolescence of digital forensics, which is 2005 to 2010. This paper only went up to 2010, so I don't really have anything after 2010 that isn't just like personal knowledge. <laughs> um, and so in these five years, there are more specialists, more examinations, and more evidence as we enter this time period. Um, in 2006, the U.S. courts adopted new rules for civil procedure that defines digital information as a new form of evidence and implements a mandatory system for dealing with digital evidence. So it kind of just regulates it a bit more. Um, information security professionals also realize the value in digital forensics, and digital forensics is then considered career-enhancing. And the Forensic Education Program Accreditation Commission also started working towards accrediting U.S. academic programs in digital forensics, which is huge. And you've probably heard us talk a lot about the importance of um, 
accreditation of a forensic science. And so there has also been a steady increase in forensic conferences covering digital forensics and materials being examined have changed, which has led to a change in how digital evidence is collected, but they're all adapting and overcoming. And like I said, this doesn't really bring us up to the immediate present, but it brings us pretty close in terms of forensics. And um, I'm sure there's a ton of articles that cover up to a closer time, but the one that I found didn't. Um, and so now I'm going to talk a little bit more about the investigative process of a digital forensic investigation. And so it can be divided into five major stages. The first is preservation, which is basically just freezing the crime scene and preventing people from using the computers during collection, stopping any ongoing deletion processes, and then deciding the safest way to collect the information. Um, we then have the collection, which is finding and collecting digital information, which can include removing personal computers, copying or printing out contents of files from a server, recording network traffic, etc. And thirdly, we have examination, which is an in-depth search of evidence, which can include log files, data files um, that contain specific phrases, timestamps, etc., um, analysis is just drawing conclusions based on evidence found and then reporting, writing a report that outlines the examination process and any relevant data recovered. This is a fairly standard investigative process across forensic sciences. It's just modified for digital information. And then in 2009, the examination of, of a computer involved two main phases the first is the imaging phase, which is where the storage device is prevented from writing any new information. And then all of the data on the computer is copied to a new hard drive that is blank and will serve as like the forensically sound copy. And then next we have the examination phase, which is where the hard drive is examined for computer files that have any probative value, so use in court. And it's also examined for files that have been recently deleted. Um, System files that were created and saved by the operating system are examined, and this shows what programs were running on the computer and any files that were changed, like, recently or just at all. And um, tools used by digital forensics can be divided into 10 categories. So we have the disk and data capture tools, file viewers, file analysis tools, registry analysis tools, internet analysis tools, email analysis tools, mobile device analysis tools, Mac OS analysis tools, network forensic tools, and database forensic tools. I'm sure there are more as um, technology has increased since this um, paper was written. And some tools within these 10 categories have now been made accessible to the private and public sectors as well in order to prevent any nefarious activities and to help with the collection of evidence if and when an intrusion does happen. Um, so they're kind of also like a preventative matter, the, well, a preventative thing that you can put on your computer um, to kind of stop anyone hacking into you or anything like that. Um, and digital forensics can be divided into roughly five different branches. And so we have computer forensics, which is the branch of digital forensics that's concerned with evidence found in computers and digital storage media. 
And we have mobile device forensics. And so this branch focuses on the recovery of digital evidence from mobile devices, such as the name would suggest. And the term mobile devices can refer to any device that has an internal memory and communication ability, including PDA devices, GPS devices, and tablets. And so this branch is particularly challenging because evidential and technical challenges like cell site analysis that makes it possible to determine roughly where the call was made from, but not to a specific location. There are changes in mobile form factors, operating systems, data storage, pin connectors, and cables. Um, The storage capacity growth has been a real challenge for mobile device forensics. Um, Most of the devices are like copyrighted. There's like a special something or other around them that makes it very difficult for forensic um, investigators. And if you turn the device off or like put it on airplane mode or something, there's a lot of processes that are suspended when that happens, um, which makes it very difficult for investigators to look at as well. Because as soon as you turn it on, it can be remotely hacked by someone else and they can delete all the information on there. So you just have to be aware of that. Um, And then we have network forensics, which is the branch that focuses on monitoring and analyzing computer network traffic um, for information gathering, legal evidence or intrusion detection. And so this branch is especially volatile and dynamic, which means that once it's transmitted, it is gone making this branch a very proactive investigation. They need to be on top of it all the time. And so um, network forensics has two uses. The first is monitoring a network for abnormal traffic and identifying intrusions. And the second is law enforcement may analyze captured network traffic as part of a criminal investigation. And then we have forensic data analysis, which is the branch that examines structured data in regard to incidents of financial crime. And so the aim is to discover and analyze patterns of fraudulent activities. And just as a side note, structured data is data from application systems or their databases, whereas unstructured data is data taken from communications, office applications, and mobile devices, where there is no overarching structure or analysis. Um, And then we have database forensics, which is the last branch of digital forensics, And it's obviously related to databases and their related metadata. And the cached information um, can also exist in a server's RAM that requires live analysis techniques. And so it may relate to timestamps in a relational database that's being inspected and tested uh, for validity to verify the actions of a database user. And it can also focus on identifying transactions within a database or application that indicates evidence of wrongdoing, such as fraud. And so I feel like social media forensics would kind of either be in network or database forensics um, because it is just in the interweb. That would make Um, sense. mm Mm-hmm. Because they were like, oh, yeah, like social media forensics is a new branch of digital forensics. And I was like, going to add a whole other section. But I was like, it feels like it fits already in one of these five. So I'm not going to add anything about it. What's the thing where it's like uh, same same shit, different smell? Like it's the same thing, but just a different label. Yeah. Anyway, so future of digital forensics. Um, Since digital forensics is a constantly evolving field, as any scientific field should be, 
um, practitioners are going to need are going to become more educated and trained. Um, digital forensic tools will need to improve and most likely become fully automated due to the sheer volume of digital information that we have access to and are required to um, investigate. And so now I'm going to talk a little bit more about the challenges of digital forensics because I feel like they're rather interesting. Um, I don't have like a comprehensive list of every single challenge that the digital forensic investigator will face. Um, But these are just some that I found interesting. So it's difficult to reliably extract evidence. Um, The evidence that they do collect is a very abstract representation of information that has no obvious properties indicating authenticity or origin. Um, That feels like just a lot of big words, but when you get the information, you need to be able to read it. It's a very... I don't know. It's just so past my realm of knowledge. Um, So people who can actually read technology is amazing. Um, The price of data storage has decreased significantly. So the amount of data one person has can be gigantic, which makes it very challenging for investigators to sort through, especially in a timely manner. Um, Digital evidence can be found across multiple devices and formats. And there's a ton of anti-forensic tools that have been used to mask or erase available digital evidence. So it's kind of the opposite of those tools that we put on our computers to prevent being hacked. Um, And then uh, digital data can be unpredictable and will require quite a bit of time to fully analyze. And this one I found very interesting and important because to collect a computer you need to unplug it. However, when you unplug it, um, a lot of the data is lost. Um, And a lot of that data that's lost is the most important evidence. It's like the recently entered passwords and um, recent sites and all of this fun stuff. So that's kind of a huge issue. Um. And it's also very important to collect every single source of digital evidence, such as PlayStations, Xboxes, etc. However, a lot of people can walk like right by that, or a lot of investigators, I guess, thinking, oh, I just need the computer. But you should also be taking the printer, the like switch, um, everything oh. else. I would even say take like on all these smart homes, like the thermostat and stuff, like everything has digital um, evidence on it. Oh, I find yeah. that so crazy. Like, I can't remember the specific case, but I remember them catching like a criminal. And I think he might have been like luring children or something. Um, and it took a while to catch him because he was doing it only on like Xbox chat rooms. So there was no mm-hmm. like emails or phones or like social media involved. It's just Xbox chat rooms. So like if you don't take that stuff, who knows what you're missing? Exactly. Yeah. Very important to get that. And then the site also said that thumb drives can be disguised as pen, knives, etc. So you wouldn't think to grab them. Um, and cell phones can be remotely altered when they are turned on, even if they're in police custody, like I said already. And there is no one tool or method that can acquire evidence from every single device on the planet. So there needs to be a specific tool made for each device to get the evidence off of it, which is exhausting. Um, And so then, because I 
I'm really interested in the legalities around collecting digital evidence. And I found a really good paper by a Dalhousie professor. Um, oh, no way. Yeah. So I have that in my sources. I'm going to put it on our website if anyone else wants to read it. But I kind of skimmed it. And I was able to find some things that I found interesting about it. So I'm just going to share those with you guys. And so... Um, First off, the legal settings require evidence to have integrity, authenticity, reproductivity, non-interference, and minimization. So they just need to pass the Daubert test, which wasn't a requirement of digital evidence for a while. Um, And prior to 1982, there were no rules in Canada that prevented using illegally obtained evidence, except for electronic surveillance, as this could result in a greater trespass of privacy. Um... But when the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was enacted in 1982, it placed some hurdles for police um, where they can't impede on a person's reasonable expectation of privacy. So collecting, um, they had to follow the rules, collecting evidence, basically. And any lack of care and attention to the legal rules surrounding the collection and use of digital evidence can make the evidence worthless and leave investigators liable to countersuits. Um, So, In the paper, um, the professor talks about a case where police officers irresponsibly collected evidence and they were sued um, because of the way they did that for like defamation of character because the person who was on trial was found not guilty or whatever. It was like, oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, right. And the police are required to have a warrant to seize things where people are expected to have some degree of privacy. And the criminal code notes that anyone with a warrant can search a computer and any data that is available to the system, including printing out and seizing copies of anything contained on the computer. So if they can get a warrant for it, they can print out every single thing on your computer if they wanted to. Holy. Yeah. So definitely check out that paper. I found it so interesting and I want to actually go through and read it all. I just didn't have time for this episode and I didn't want to talk for two more hours about (laughs) the legalities of digital evidence because I feel like people would not appreciate that whatsoever. Um, And that's basically all I have for um, digital forensics. The last slide I have is just the application to the case, but it's Nicole already went over that. Um, I find it um, interesting, sorry, kind of going a little bit on the company that did the research into like how many killings happened through Craigslist. Um, They said like with digital forensics moving forward, they kind of predicted three trends. So I kind of want to get your opinion on that piece based off the research you've done. Yeah. Um, But first, so he basically said that the first trend that is predicted that we're going to see is that there's going to be a shift to mobile analytics. So a lot of the online digital forensics that's like going to happen in the future is going to be solely through like phones and text messaging and trying to figure out the ways to combat that compared to say like laptops or printers, anything in that realm. Um, because he says it accounts for 60 to 70% of evidence at the moment. Yeah, I would agree with that. I feel like everyone's on their phone all of the time. Yeah. And we keep a lot of our most important things on our phones. So if you're going to look for something, definitely check the phone first. 
And I find it interesting, too, because, like, the fact that our phones are always listening to us, like, they're going to tell you that they're not, but they they are. Like, let's they be are. honest. They're, all, they're yeah. always listening to us. Like, I think I, we've talked about that in the past, but it's still <laughs> so weird. I'm like, I was just talking about coffee. Why am I getting ads for it? Yeah. Like, it's, like I didn't look it up. Right. I literally only said it. <laughs> the creepiest one was when... Um, Nicole was over at my house in Halifax and then she got an ad for my roommate's slippers that we didn't even talk about all like she just saw them and thought about them yeah and then she got an ad for them yeah that's like I've never I had never seen them before in my life like I didn't I didn't ask or say like hey those I think I maybe have mentioned oh those are some nice slippers or those are some cool slippers that was it and but they're yet, so unique that yeah. to get a personal ad for them, it was just crazy. Yeah. So strange. Like, I don't know how any of that works. And I don't know if I want to, because I think I would just turn into like a conspiracy theorist. Be like, no, they're listening all the time. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but like, I'm curious to see how that'll play out with digital forensics, though, because like, are they able to easily access that information? Like, if they're saying they're not listening to us, though, and they have this evidence, could that not be like a point of contention in that regard you know what i'm saying yes but often like we agree to it like no one ever reads the terms and conditions yeah what are in the terms and conditions for each thing like having the mic on on my phone just for like an app like if i want to record a video on snapchat that doesn't necessarily mean that the mic is only on when i'm recording the video it could be on whenever it just doesn't specify it Oh yeah, yeah. But technically, I, I agree. Having iPhones, the mic on. Yeah, that's true. I do love that iPhones like notify you now, like with a little dot when it's using it. But I still don't completely trust that because most of my apps don't technically have access to it. But I'm like, how yeah. do I know they don't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something I've been learning a lot about um, from TV shows is like Trojan horse um, links or whatever, mm-hmm. where they send you a link. And then you click on it and then it like allows them complete access to your entire like phone or computer, whatever you open it on. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So there's um, things like that where you could like open a link that you think is coming from like a trusted person. And then all of a sudden they have full access to your phone and you have no idea. Yeah. We had to, I actually had to learn a lot about that. I did a, um, like an HR video course through, um, the company I'm with right now, just about like phishing and email scams and like how to protect yourself. And that's a lot of the times is what people will do when, you know, if they're setting up an elaborate email scam or fish is they like may pretend if it's a bigger company, they may pretend to be a higher up individual, um, send out all of these emails with a link. And then once you access and open that link on, say, a work computer, you then give all of that information and open that door to whoever sent that link, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's very scary. What were the other two Um, trends that digital forensics was going into? Yeah. So the second one was that there was going to be a mass proliferation of video surveillance equipment, particularly from cloud enabled home security devices. So this would be devices like Ring and all of those like doorbell devices and just 
cameras. I know I, a lot of people have cameras just in their house now, which kind of creeps me out, but I guess yeah. they have them and like baby monitoring cameras, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which I can totally, like, I feel like half of the videos I see nowadays that are like noteworthy and news are all through like ring cameras. Yeah, I feel like there's definitely been, like, an uptick in, like, the smart home ring cameras mm-hmm. and all of that fun stuff. And even just with, like, CCTV and, like, security camera stuff, um, my old boss used to talk to me a lot about, like, the increase in CCTV um, mm-hmm. cameras in Calgary. And was yeah, just, well, like, I hope freaking they'd at least gotten it. more, like, protected did like privacy wise because i remember when i was younger i had this app on my phone that looking back at it now i'm like oh my god this feels like a crime there was an (laughs) app that you could just go in and watch like live security cameras around the world that like what like the 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 streets had installed or like ones that people had like in their house that just weren't <gasps> secured properly and they oh were just all on this app to watch at all times mm-hmm. and thinking back now i'm like oh that's so scary that's well, terrifying and that's why it's important to like do your technology the right way to make sure yeah. that people can't access it like even with like not having a password on your wi-fi um yeah. my a guy that I know, he went to dinner um, and they had an open Wi-Fi or whatever and he hacked into it and um, was like in charge of their whole like point of sale system. (gasps) He like crashed their whole thing. And so the waitress came over and was like, oh my gosh, what happened? And he was like, or he called the waitress over and he was like, oh my gosh, what happened? And he was like, this is what I did from my phone. You guys need to put a password on this and have better protection because I don't have any ill intent with this, but someone else could do this. And if they're smarter than me or have more technology, they could cause some real damage. Yikes. That's so scary. Right. I don't know how true this story is, but it seems like there could be some truth to it. It feels, yeah, it feels definitely very true, but Um, yeah, just be smart. Yeah. The last one's just that, you know, like as technology is constantly upgrading and evolving, so are criminals. So crime itself is just leaning more like digitally. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think in the next couple of years or decades, there's going to be that shift from like in-person break and enters and like armed robberies to like credit card fraud or like digital money laundering, like that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I wonder if we're going to kind of go through like this phase of it's like only digital crimes. Mm, um, yeah. To the point where like we almost forget how to process physical evidence and then it like a resurgence of like oh. physical crimes kind of happen because yeah. people are getting too good at catching digital evidence people. Yeah. I I feel like there's going to be a weird mix between them. Like, I do think that'll happen. But then you got to think about, like, how do you commit a crime when there's cameras everywhere? You know, Mm -hmm. like, I think that'll add a new layer to it all is there's going to be new complexities to committing crime in general. Well, and the whole thing with, like, yes, there's cameras everywhere, but you need to know the person like someone needs to identify the person on camera. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you 
don't have a rap sheet and you commit a crime and you get caught on camera. Yeah. Unless they by chance meet you or they already know you or someone like someone like that, like you're pretty much not going to get found. Like we don't have that facial recognition like in TV shows. Yeah. And I think maybe like that's some place that we may be heading towards, but I don't see like the only way I can envision that happening is when I think of bones and like analyzing faces and matching them to like driver's licenses or stuff like that, like matching facial features to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then again, like we're at an age where you can't really just be identified off looks alone because of procedures that exist to alter appearance, right? Like exactly. it's not a very reliable source. Well, it's even like opinion. fingerprints where it's like how many points of not like contact, but like how many points comparison. need to match yeah. for it to be an identification. Yeah. Comparison. Yeah. And there's and no like, standard to that, right? Like it's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My old boss was like, he was so mad because he came back from the dentist and he's like, um, Journey, why does the dentist need my biometrics? And I was like, what? <laughs> they have access to your saliva. If they wanted your DNA, they'd get it. Like, I don't understand yeah. what you're asking. And he was like, why'd they have to take my picture? And I was like, so that they know who you are. Like, yeah, I don't know why. Like, they just did that. Ask and he's them. like, well, <laughs> yeah. I was like, why are you asking me? I don't work in a dentist's office. I work in the coffee shop. Um, and he was like, yeah, he was so mad. He's like, well, like they are, they took my biometrics and I was like, okay, well, the dentist doesn't have like the ability to scan your iris to like identify you. Like, yeah, no. I, he's like, well, how do you know that? I'm like, well, cause they're a dentist office. <laughs> like, unless you're going to some crooked dentist, that's like a front for some form of like money laundering or whatever. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. It's just like a dentist and optometrist combo. So you get the eye and the, the dental records. And you're like, you're screwed down. Yeah. Well, and then he was like, I worked in the government. I know how this works. And I was like, that's oh. sketchy, sir. That's sketchy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know what government you worked for. That's scary. <laughs> but yeah, because he worked for the Iranian government. And oh. I don't know what he did because he will not talk about it. <laughs> And I'm like, what did you do with biometrics? Why are you so concerned about this? Yeah, like, why is this your top fear at the moment? Just let them take your photo. (laughs) What do you know about what's being done with those photos that you're not sharing with me because you can't? Oh, gosh. But yeah, anyway. So that's pretty much all I have about digital forensics, unless either of you have any questions. Not that I can think of. I think it's just terrifying that... Mm -hmm. our life and where the world is now with like, I'm thankful that we have the technology that we do, but I'm also scared to see where it leads. Yeah. It's a catch 22 for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So that also got me thinking a lot about (laughs) (laughs) I'm for the existential crisis. (laughs) Yep. Time to go back to keeping all my passwords in a diary with a lock on it. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta go to Claire's and get that lock diary. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Journey, thank you so much for educating us about that today. It was super interesting and informative. And I mean, even within the last decade, I'm sure, like you had said, digital forensics has come so far because technology in general within the last 20 years has like 
exponentially grown. Mm -hmm. So that's super cool. And I'm super happy to now know more about it. And uh, I hope our listeners obviously enjoyed learning about it and the Philip Markov case, which Nicole, thank you so much for telling us about. Um, With that being said, I just wanted to let our listeners know about the next topic that we will be doing. So we're going to be discussing the Srebrenica massacre. And as for the science, we'll be doing forensic botany, uh, also with a bit of, bit of forensic palynology. Um, we're kind of putting those two together because they fall in a pretty similar field. But uh, yeah, so I look forward to learning more about those in the next episode because I remember the forensic botany classes in labs we did were very neat. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know plants could help solve crimes. <laughs> Anyways, I have a really n- bad joke again. No, it's I'm not so a ready. joke. I'm ready. But uh, why did the programmer leave the camping trip early? <laughs> why? Oh. I don't know why. There were too many bugs. Oh. <laughs> Really not great. It's all fine. That's a good one. one. It it went in an opposite direction of where I thought it was going to go. So (laughs) I'll give you that one. That one was good. I like it. That's funny. We really need to hire like a A joke writer. (laughs) (laughs) And not our quick Google searches. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. I have seen that Fresh Prince one so many times. Yeah. <laughs> Forensics jokes. <laughs> Google search. <laughs> Forensics Literally. jokes about digital stuff. <laughs> Basically <laughs> worked up. Yep. Yeah. Um, I would have done so. With my not so funny joke out of the way, um, Journey, where can people find us on social media? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. Our website is whattheforensics.ca, where you can find what we're up to, who we are, and all of our episodes, sources, and source images. And then if you want to get in contact with us, our email is whattheforensics at gmail.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, we would love it if our listeners reached out to us with any questions they might have about something or maybe reviews or comments about the podcast itself or interesting cases we can do in the future. Um, we really enjoy interacting with you guys. Um, not only do we learn from some of the stuff that you tell us, but it also just gives us a chance to really deliver the content that you guys want to hear. Um, but with that being said, we would love it if you reviewed our podcast, but this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We really hope you enjoyed listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm